following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Garnishing your ham with pineapple? Pair it with a delicious Chardonnay to make their taste buds swirl. Deviled eggs are even better when paired with a light, dry wine like a bubbly Prosecco or a Pinot Grigio. For me, nothing beats recommending a great wine. And with such an extensive selection, I can help you find the perfect one in your budget. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! Welcome to the Forbes Sports Money Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Ozanian. On this show, we talk about the business of sports. For today's show, we hear from Greg Norman, the legendary Australian golfing champion and entrepreneur. The original chat took place on Mike's TV show, Sports Money, late last year. Greg, where do you get your entrepreneurial spirit from? I don't know, really. I think I've picked it up over the years of, um, obviously, on the golf course, I knew I could put bums on the seats. Um, bring people through the gate. I could move the needle on television. And so, you know, my skill level on the golf course taught me that to a lot of degree. Um, and as I developed and grew up and matured, I understood from, you know, negotiations where, and I'll give you an example, if uh, a management company that I was associated with at the time would come to you and say, hey, Greg, would you like to go play in an X part of the world three of the next five years and we're going to guarantee you this amount of money? I go, yeah, sounds great. Okay, why not? I can put it on my schedule. You do that about six or eight or ten times a year. What they do then is they take, now they've locked you in as number one player in the world. Then they'll go lock in three or four of the other top 15 players in the world. Now they can go to sponsors. Now they can go to television. And now all of a sudden they've got a big story to sell. So they used us as the Trojan horse to come in behind to make all the money. But, yeah, we're professional golfers. We're independent contractors. I get it, I understand it, but the management company I started to put it all together was making the bigger piece of it all. And I thought, okay, this is not really the right way for Greg Norman to look at it. How will Greg Norman look at this? So as the years went by, um, I knew a management company was never going to put develop equity in your brand or in your name or your position. They're always going to build equity in their brand, whichever that management company is. So I started to sit back, take take stock of it. And, uh, you know, when you are in that position, you are in a position of a bit of strength. Um, but if you don't have the bandwidth or understanding of it, then how do you actually move on it, exercise on it? How do you challenge them? How do you do that? And, uh, you know, that's how I learned to, uh, a lot to a degree. And then now in the business world, a totally different deal, right? You're the master of your own destiny. You, know, you dictate to everybody. They work for you. You don't work for a management company. Um, so it's a totally different uh, ballgame. And taking a moment to thank our sponsors, Varidesk, Rocket Mortgage, and ZipRecruiter. Right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Forbes. You'll hear more about these companies later in the show. What do you actually have to do in order to be in charge of your own equity, put equity in your own brand, as opposed to letting the companies you're working with be in control of your brand. Well, look, when you're, when you're a player, I don't care what athlete you are, male or female, if you're good at what you're doing, corporations would like to have their name associated with you for exposure. Understand, it's a one-on-one and being sports marketing, right? But at the same time, when you look at this, they're signing you up for maybe a three-year time period. So you have become a pass-through entity. 
And if you come become a pass-through entity, then you know you have a finite time period. And that finite time period for a really good athlete could be 10 to 15 years. For a so-so athlete, it could be 5 to 10 years. So you knew that, uh, that being that pass-through entity, you had to think about going ahead in time to say, okay, where am I going to be when I'm 40? Or where am I going to be when I'm 45? Or where am I going to be when I'm 50? And say, okay, now how do I structure it? That's how you get to, well, I got to a point of deciding, A, they're not going to build equity in my brand, even though you, early in my career I didn't have a brand. And, and B, I knew I was going to be treated as a pass-through entity. And there's always going to be another athlete behind me, another Greg Norman. And that's always going to happen generation to generation to generation. That's just sports marketing. So I didn't like that world. Greg, how did the different stages of your career impact the development of your various businesses in terms of, okay, I'm at this point in my career, this is now the next business I want to get into and so forth? I think the biggest turning point of my career in, from going transitioning from the sports world into the business world was with Reebok. I was an endorsed player for Reebok. I wore Reebok on my sleeve. I was a clean athlete. And by what that I mean is Reebok decided not to put, they paid a premium to keep me clean, right? So I didn't have a multiple bunch of patches on me like promoting other corporations. And uh, Paul Fireman, who owned Reebok at the time, uh, we became very, very good friends. And uh, me wearing Reebok, he decided one day to form the Greg Norman Collection. I was number one player in the world. He was a golf fanatic. He wanted to get out of the, you know, not get out of, but to expand his Reebok division. He was in other sports, uh, but he wanted to get into golf. So what we came up with, Greg Norman Collection needed a logo. My nickname was Great White Shark. Started in 1981 at the Masters. And uh, so it built out from there. And then Paul said, we're going to design a logo and you're going to own that. Then I'm going to lease it back from you. And that was the turning point for me to realize I have to understand marketing and branding and the importance of those two things. Tie that with a uh, being in sport as the number one player in the world, being a global player like I was, I didn't just stay in one location. All of a sudden, this my whole world opened up to a plethora of new thoughts, processes that I had to go through. And at the end of the day, when I made a decision not to re-sign with the management company. I knew then, right there and then, because I had a great logo that was recognizable. I had Reebok behind me through distribution channels through their Reebok retail outlets. We all of a sudden just had a clothing line that just went through the roof very, very quickly. Um, so I learned there again, like I said, branding and marketing. I was the, I was the living brand. I represented not just Reebok, not just golf, not just Australia. I represented the Greg Norman collection. And that then I stepped back and took a real deep breath and said, okay, what's the lifetime of this? Well, it really, it goes on a perpetuity, right? Because Paul Feynman was never going to invest millions of dollars into building this brand out if it wasn't, you know, if it was going to disappear in three to five years. So I knew then the value of the importance of staying out ahead of the game. Um, so yeah, he was the guy who really unbeknownst to him, um, really bumped me away from the sports marketing side of life to look at how to build a bigger picture, how to look out 15 years, how to look out 20 years, how to look out 200 years like I've done with my executive team um, to help you understand, okay, when you build a brand, 
you've got to build that brand in perpetuity. If you're just uh, associated with a brand as an endorsement player, and I didn't wake up the next day, then that disappears immediately. But if you build a great foundation within a, band, within a brand that has a platform of stability and strength and ability to grow, not just vertically integrated, but across all platforms, then all of a sudden you have life in perpetuity. Now you can start looking out these multiple generations or decades and decades and decades into the future. So um, Paul didn't realize it, but he pushed me on that path. Did you have to redirect your business once your playing days were over? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, first of all, like I said, when I was playing, everything I did with business was vertically integrated with golf. It gave me the access to get in front of corporations, get in front of CEOs, leaders of the free world, leaders of you know my home country, other places. Fortunately, because of my uh, success on the golf course, I was elevated to that capability but i also was a very confident guy i felt like i could pick up the phone and ask somebody a question and i had a lot of great ceos around the world for the last 40 years that i would just do that i've been lucky enough to know leaders of the free world where i could pick up the phone and ask them a question and get guidance and uh, you put all these little bits of uh, helpful information into your recipe of life then you you bubble it up to the way you wanted to have it and so it, as I sit here today, you know, there's been a lot of people who have been very, very influential in my career. They don't, probably don't realize it. And that's why I look back on other kids coming up. If I can give them a piece of advice that they might be able to parlay out 20 years down the line, then I've done my job because that happened to me. Who are some of the people who influence you business-wise the most? Um, look, I'm a big fan of... Uh, Today, I'm a big fan of like Henri Lacoste, you know, his brand. I'm a big fan of uh, Ralph Lauren, his brand, what he's done. But, you know, the gentlemen that uh, like Roger Penske, Penske Trucks, um, uh, Jack Welsh, I mean, what he did with GE was phenomenal. Both friends of mine, um, where you could actually sit down and you can actually follow what they did and they quietly did it. Now, Roger was in sports, motorsports, but he wasn't a great sports race driver. Right. But he was smart. He knew what to do. He knew how to logistics side of things, moving things around and got into the trucking business and got into uh, the car business. And now look at him. He's a behemoth. Right. Um, so you look at those guys where their journey starts with a single step and they've gone a thousand miles. Right. And uh, so when you look at Ralph, he was selling ties and look where he is today. So you really and I started at twenty eight dollars a week in a pro shop. So. And here I am today. So, you know, you've really got to identify where you want to go. Um, and I early enough realized that the branding and stuff, but I fell in love with golf course design. I never anticipated being in the golf course design business, uh, but I fell in love with it because I did have an artistic mind. I could see out, like begin with the end in mind. I could actually visualize a golf course when I walked to a virgin site. And uh, so just the golf course design opened up this other opportunity to the consumer market. What is that consumer market? It can be hard goods, soft goods. It can be wine. It can be beef. It can be real estate. It can be interior design. It can be whatever you want it to be. And uh, so just by golf course design, opening up those avenues, because we are an economic indicator to some degree. We know when the GFC was going to come because our account receivables were moving out. 
and we know where the money's shifting around the world because we're in the top three golf course design companies in the world, we know where the hundreds of millions of dollars are going to move to do high resort golf course communities, uh, residential communities. So we know where the money's shifting because golf is an amenity and we get a call and they say, hey, would you be interested in designing a golf course in Vietnam? And we go, okay, let's take a look at it. You do your background checks. You see if they got the legs. You see where the money's coming from. A lot of it's coming from out of America, right, during the GFC because you're getting negative rates here. So they shift somewhere. They want to make money, whether it's 2 or 3 or 4%. Not the 20, 25 percent in you know, the over-leveraged days back of the you know, 80s and 90s. Um, so the money moves. So you know where the money's going. So we use that to our advantage. And um, again, you know, you can bolt on a lot of things around that. So it's all vertically integrated to some degree through golf course design and what I did on my club playing career. Jack Welsh was also famous for maximizing profitability out of each business division. And if a division didn't yield a certain yeah. return... Sell it, fix it, or shut it down. Exactly. Right? Do you follow that with your business? Yeah, absolutely. It's got to wash its own face, right? I mean, you don't want to be uh, taking from one division to prop up another division. You, They have to wash their own face. They have to be accountable. And if they're not, then you've got to step back and see, okay, who was accountable for it? Uh, what was their business model? Uh, what were, how were they, uh, what was their uh, growth? How they're going to achieve that growth? Yeah, we sit down and do that all the time with each and every one of them. You just opened a golf course, I believe, in Melbourne, Australia. Yep. Golf, though, here in the United States seems to be having difficulty getting new players. Seems like the rounds being played has been stagnant for a yep. few years. Where do you see the sport of golf going? And, and is it something that you think will impact your golf design business. It has impacted the golf course design business. The GFC definitely did that. I made the, the decision very on to make an adjustment. So when the pendulum's on the way down, how do you make an adjustment in your business? So when that pendulum starts swinging back up, you're ahead of the game. You're not playing catch up. So I made a decision um, you know, with the design business to shift gears a little bit and uh, move and find uh, the places in the world, like I said, the economic indicator, find the place of the world where the money was shifting to. And we found it was like way away from America. Far East was one, right? Australia is another one, Middle East to a degree. Uh, but yeah, it's a long journey to get away from the United States to get to those places. So you had to be willing to make that sacrifice to go chase the jobs. Um, and luckily for us, we kept a fairly steady stream of jobs coming through golf course design business. Not to where it was in the 80s and 90s, but we kept the doors open. Um, and quite honestly, it was the hardest time in my life is when I had to lay off some people out of a division, and that was my golf course design vision, division. But we had to do that to keep, the, you know, to keep it moving. And we'll be right back after this quick break. Hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and just praying for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. 
They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive, so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Forbes. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Forbes. One more time, ZipRecruiter.com slash Forbes. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. What's your read on China, Greg? I mean, the growth there overall still seems very strong, but, you know, it's hard to tell exactly what numbers you can trust from there. And then there's also the problem in terms of the Chinese government not letting money leave the country at certain times as it has in the past. Yet they seem to love sports. They love golf. They love basketball. They've been buying sports teams, U.S. sports teams, investing in them. Uh, What type of potential does that uh, hold, do you think, for your businesses? Well, with President Xi putting a moratorium on golf course design and and construction in China, put a big hurt on it. Uh, Before that, there was a big boom going on. I gave a speech uh, with the central government, the tourism department of central government in Hainan Island one time. Now, this is going back around seven years ago, maybe eight years ago, um, where they had the the tourism department had this vision of building 15,000 golf courses in China over the next 20, 25 years, right? So you go, 15,000, wow, that's a, that's a number in the United States today. And you go, that's a, a monumental undertaking to do that. And um, I wanted to get in front of them in a, in a big way because if you fell into the trap of what happened in the United States in the 80s and 90s, like I touched on, and there was a massive golf boom, everybody was over leveraged, they thought there was unlimited cash out there to do whatever they wanted to do. We, we, the Royal We, which is the golf course design business, and um, built golf courses that were unsustainable. They were spending, I'm just rounding this up, you know, don't quote me on these numbers, but let's just say a golf course was, you could have built it for eight to 10 million, they were spending 20. And if for an eight to $10 million golf course, you could have it maintained for a million dollars a year, or some of them were two million a year, right? So that ongoing cost of doing it was unsustainable to the golfer. So what happens when there's a GFC comes in to, into play? Disposable income gets hit big time. And when people were members of three or four or five golf courses because they were leveraged up, all of a sudden that disposable income of 100000 a year for annual dues, they've got to trim that budget big time, right? So they'll probably drop two or three golf courses off their you know, portfolio of membership and boom, all of a sudden golf clubs start to really feel the pain of the pump because the money is not coming in from their annual dues. So look, we were the masters of creating that disaster, quite honestly. Um, and when you look at something like China, if they don't do it in a sustainable fashion, they could easily fall in there. So I said to them, please do not replicate what happened in the United States in the 80s and 80s and 90s. Learn from their lessons. And if you do it in the right sustainable fashion for generations and generations to come, China will have more golfers than the rest of the world. And it wouldn't be hard to see because it is a popular game. I know I see that because the golf courses we're building in Australia and in Vietnam are really got a lot of overflow from the uh, expat Chinese. So they want to go somewhere to play golf. And we see it on the East Coast from Vancouver all the way down to San Diego and here in the United States, and sometimes you see it trickling east of the Mississippi, right? 
So they're there. They want to get their money out. That restriction is coming on them a little bit tighter because of the government. They don't want that money leaving China. They want it to stand in China. And then finally getting back to China, I think once they, once they get the handle on what they want to do with golf, and I would love to be in front, front of President Xi talking to him about a sustainable platform, it would be an economic windfall for their country because of what golf can bring to them. Uh, yes, they're probably restricted with um, um, enough property because they've got to look after their, you know, their, their agricultural side of things is huge in China as well. But I've traveled to China enough to see that there are plenty of great pockets of that area where you can grow golf in a sustainable fashion. So I think they've got a huge opportunity, uh, but I think somebody's got to present a pretty good white paper to them to make sure they understand the where it could be 25, 30, 40 years down the line. Technology is impacting all sports. You've recently partnered up with Verizon to come up with a technology for golf carts. What do you see in this technology that excites you and makes you think it holds promise? Well, what excited me was basically over four years ago when I walked into a cart barn. At that time, I was one of the major shareholders of a GPS company. Uh, so we were doing um, the yardages on the golf carts, right? And the screen was going up. And most golf courses, if they have a um, cart facilities, there's about 72 carts per golf course. Um, but they have to be charged overnight, right? So you go into most clubhouses, uh, the basement is the cart barn facility where they're recharged, or they have an outside building. I walked down in the basement of this one place four, over four years ago, and they're not all 72 golf cars had the screen on it. There's like maybe 50% of them. And I'm looking at that and I'm looking at the screen and I'm going, it's just like a hotel. Every room in a hotel has got a TV screen, maybe two, maybe three. You walk in there, you turn it on, the hotel comes up with their you know, promotional stuff, but there's a genre of things you can get. Adult entertainment, kids games, kids movies, news, entertainment, music, you name it, you can get it. And I go, why can't we do that here? Why can't each one of these screens that we put up on these golf carts have that capability of doing that? Because it is basically a 10.1-inch screen, mm. right? A lot easier said than done, right? So I go back with my partner, and we sit down, and we have a conversation for a couple months, and we put together a bit of a game plan, and we, we look at Club Car because we had a relationship with Club Car at that time and still do to this day. And we realized Club Car was the, uh, had the largest penetration in the market, about 47 to 50% market share domestically. Well, that meant 50,000 golf carts a year. You go, hmm, 50,000 carts a year. If we can put a screen on every single one of those, fully deployed, there'd be like 200,000 TV screens out there. 200,000 TV screens in front of a player for four and a half hours, you're capturing a market, right? So I identified virgin space is what I did. Nobody had ever even thought about making that screen a connected screen like your device. It's a platform. It's not a product. So it's forever evolving. It's not like bending metal. It's forever evolving. Whatever new comes out from Verizon, and I'll get to Verizon, but whatever new comes out from them, it is like we can input it. Whatever content, we can input it. So when we sat back and we looked at it, we had Club Car because we had a relationship then with GPSI, uh, but we needed a connectivity partner. And uh, Verizon, to me, was the logical one to go to because they had, they had the biggest penetration um, in the cellular network. And I thought, 
Okay. Now, club car, there's about 15,000 golf courses in the United States. Club cars on 6,700 of them. So I think from a Verizon standpoint, it was content getting out there to in front of 150 million golf, 55 million golf rounds per year. So they look at it and going, well, here's an opportunity of expanding our connected platform. And they were in the media business, right? So they owned AOL, Yahoo. So it was an automatic media play for them, which is great for us because we needed content, whether it was cash content or live content. So all of a sudden, this pixie dust they threw in the air for 30 seconds is starting to come down and formulate into a, something special. And four years later, with the hard work from my GN media company and the hard work from Club Car and the hard work from Verizon and GPSI, here we are. And um, at the end of the day, we have something that nobody's ever, ever, ever done before on the golf space. And we'll be in front of 93 million golfers every year, year on year. So we don't know how this platform is going to evolve. It will evolve just like your your phone evolves with an update every now and then. This platform will evolve too. So it, to me, it's such an exciting move. The most... Um, most significant investment my partner and I have ever made into any business. I mean, we are financing a screen on every cart coming out of Clubcast. So we are financing 50,000 screens each year, year on year. So a big undertaking, but we actually control the content with the partner with Verizon. And then the final thing, two final things is it's a cashless system. Right, we've, we're actually uh, got easy links involved where you go one swipe of the card, just like you go to a hotel, one swipe of your card, everything's cashless. When you leave, then you check out. You swipe that card, you get a digital shark key. That key unlocks that golf card out there, and now you have a plethora of opportunities of choosing what you want up there. And uh, so at the end of the day, it's um, you know, your game, your way. You can choose whatever you want, all of it, none of it. Music, everything, right? Music, everything, yeah. You know, you mentioned vertical integration earlier. I mean, and that also now you're just saying this is the largest investment you and your partner have made into one of your businesses. But also to me, it seems like potentially this could be the ultimate in vertical integration because of technology. Absolutely. Look, we sit back today and think where are we going to be a year from now, okay? First of all, we're going to sit back and look at the take rate. And from a B2B, B2C model, right? I mean, there's going to be different take rates on each and every one of those. But we're fairly confident with the platform that we have shown. And by the way, we're doing pilot tests today where we've had over 3,000 rounds played in two golf courses, two public facilities. I won't tell you where they are, but one's $160 a round and the other's $40 a round. And both of them catering to two different uh, markets, right? Almost to a T, everybody's saying exactly the same thing. So we're very, very confident that our take rate and our conservative models that we've run uh, early on, um, we will achieve those. Uh, but then as you build that out and you understand the take rate is coming in, now how? what is the next thing we add on? And how do we add on? And what are people looking for? And it's just a fascinating process to go through because... Look what Verizon's done in their connectivity space. Look what Verizon's done in totality from smart cities to their ag tech to it just it, it just keeps going out and out now because you know why everybody's connected with their device and, you know just like you see sports teams now data is power 
and, and the analytics that you can do with data is so powerful. You see sports teams collecting data on their consumers, their fans. This will obviously have that capability. You know, you, it's big in data analytics, right? Well, it's huge. Well, because at the end of the day, when you, when you look what the whole learning curve about what the consumer wants, right? We will have enough data coming in. Like if you wanted to book a tea time with Easy Links, right? And you want to say, okay, I want to go play Pebble Beach. I'm just picking a name. I want to go play Pebble Beach six months from now on March the 23rd. And over a period of time, we'll get to know that Mike's going to go play Pebble Beach. He likes a Bridgestone golf ball or a TaylorMade golf ball or this or that. He likes a hot dog instead of hamburger. He likes to wear this type of clothing. All of a sudden, we'll be able to pull all that data together to make your journey as seamless as possible because it'll be all on your phone, on an app, and it'll be all on the golf cart where you want, what you like, your food and beverage, which you'll be able to order on that golf cart. You'll be connected to where you want to go before you even get there. Um, so then you've got the, the accumulation of all this data, 155 million golf rounds a year. That's a lot of data coming in on four and, a, four and a half hours per golfer, right? So you're pulling in what do they like to watch? What do they like to listen to? Do they like snackable content on news like this? Is it too much news we're giving or not enough? Is the, is the cached content being viewed enough or not enough, you know? Or do we not have enough of that? All these things that we'll be able to go, okay, Mike, you like this. You like this type of music. Boom, boom, boom. There it is. So quite honestly, it's as big as we really want it to be. Um, and look, quite honestly, the, the support we've had from Verizon all the way at their executive level, from you know, Lowell McAdam, the CEO, to Marnie Waldron, to Tim Armstrong for head of AOL, to John Stratton, the, all the top executives, when we presented this to them, from between their middle management on up, they go, this is a no-brainer because this is expanding their connectivity space. This is expanding their media content space. So that's why Verizon has been such a great partner to us because they can see beyond that. And like I mentioned, 6,700 small businesses, which are golf courses, right? 6,700 small businesses out there and growing. They now are in front of those small businesses. They might be in some, they may not be in some. So you can see how from, from their business development side, they have this massive opportunity of expanding their base as well. How does uh, PlaySide fit into the vertical integration of your companies? Um, look, I, I like PlaySide. I love the technology. It comes out of Israel. Um, I, I love playing tennis myself. Um, when I saw that Novak Djokovic was involved and Anna Ivanovic, I know both of them. I know Anna better than uh, Novak. But I looked at it and I went to look at the technology and I thought, I get the tennis space, but there is such a big market for them outside of the tennis space. So I spoke to my partner again and we said, you know, there's a big opportunity here to grow this company faster than what they think it should grow or can grow. And it's beyond tennis. It could be golf. It could be a lot of other sport applications to it. Uh, they're already doing it. They're all, they're already morphing out into basketball uh, and other sports. But we see it in, in the golfing world, a huge opportunity because every golf course has a driving range. Most golf courses have a, an academy or a practice facility where members can go record their swing and check it out. So as a growth um, capacity in the game of golf, PlaySide is, I think, got a huge upside. So that's why we invested. And the technology. Again, it's continually evolving. It's evolving. And, and you know, quite honestly, 
Verizon, our partner, Verizon Ventures invested with us into PlaySight. So again, that relationship just keeps building out, building out, building out. And we'll be right back after this quick break. Traditional static offices are a thing of the past. Today, companies and employees want an active workspace. Varidesk helps people reimagine their office design. Being more active at work, like standing more and sitting less, can help improve your health by boosting energy and productivity. The new ProDesk 60 electric standing desk is the cornerstone of the active office. It's designed with commercial-grade materials, stable at any height, and fully assembled in under five minutes. Plus, all Varidesk products are made to last. They're also simple to set up and move or reconfigure as businesses change and grow. Check out Varidesk products, including the new ProDesk 60 Electric, risk-free for 30 days with free shipping and free returns. Learn more at varidesk.com slash Forbes. That's V-A-R-I-Desk.com slash Forbes. And there's Rocket Mortgage. Support for the Forbes Sports Money Podcast comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, the mortgage company that decided to ask why. Why can't clients get approved in minutes rather than weeks? Why can't they make adjustments to their rate and term in real time? And why can't there be a client-focused technological mortgage revolution? Quicken Loans answered all these questions and more with Rocket Mortgage. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence you need when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. Whether you're looking to buy your first home or your 10th, with Rocket Mortgage you get a transparent, online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Apply simply. Understand fully. Mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash Forbes. Equal housing lender. License in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Garnishing your ham with pineapple? Pair it with a delicious Chardonnay to make their taste buds swirl. Deviled eggs are even better when paired with a light, dry wine like a bubbly Prosecco or a Pinot Grigio. For me, nothing beats recommending a great wine. And with such an extensive selection, I can help you find the perfect one in your budget. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! Your investment business has also evolved a lot recently. What are you doing in your investment business, specifically venture capital, which is, I know, something that you're very excited about? Well, I am, but it's on a case-by-case basis. I mean, we probably have, I'm saying my business partner, David Chesler, um, he would probably get visibility into six to eight different opportunities a week. That's because of the credibility of what we've done um, and the investment strategies we've brought to the table and some of the business that we've been involved with. Um, there's been a couple where they're defaulted and we've actually taken over the company and we're not operators, right? You know, we, we like to invest and we like to invest on the debt side. Um, so we actually see, you know, switching gears a little bit, we actually see if this new tax plan comes through with Donald Trump, a huge uptick. 
because quite honestly, small businesses have been really squashed over the last eight or nine years, and they haven't had the access to capital to grow their companies. And that's how we really got into it, quite honestly. Um, and we had the capabilities because we had uh, the finances to do it. And most of the time when we got involved with it, it was the branding helped a little bit to a degree. Um, but now when if these some of these um, regulations get loosened up, like they could get loosened up, we'll see golf and a lot of the industries start to pick up again. Wine and beef, mm-hmm. two more of your businesses. Real, real tough industries to be in, extremely Consumer competitive, products, and yeah. it can be very volatile. Yeah. Yet, you seem to be doing very well in them. What's the secret? Well, uh, with the wine, I'll just tell you, our secret of the wine was um, hedging the FX. Um, we were 60% of... Um, uh, all premium wines out of Australia when we first launched. Fade to Black, how he started in the wine business. I was number one player in the world. A good friend of mine was head of Foster's Brewing. He wanted me to represent Foster's in the United States, carrying a Foster's bag and doing commercials for Foster's, right? Chugging back a frothy one. And, uh, but in those days, the federal regulations, active athletes couldn't advertise alcoholic beverages. So you couldn't be seen consuming it, right? Um, so that kind of fell down the dark hole because they didn't want to invest the millions of dollars in that, knowing that you couldn't, I couldn't be out there promoting Australian beer. But lo and behold, uh, Foster's had a couple of small wineries, and um, they had very poor uh, success rate in the U.S. I was a big wine, still am a big wine buff, and um, we sat down one day, and lo and behold, the idea came up and say, okay, why don't we take this wine over here that's got a brand on it, which is not really doing well. Greg, you do some taste tests. Tell us what you think the American market's like. Now, this is going back 17, 18 years ago, two decades. And say, what do you think the market likes? And we'll bring the Australian wines into America. Okay, a lot easier said than done, right? So we rebranded this whole thing, Greg Norman Estates, and um, we projected the first year 15,000 cases. We did 108,000 cases the first year. Completely blew our minds away, right? Completely blew away. So Australian wines with flavor of the month. And it was like six or seven different varietals too. It wasn't just one or two. So we knew we were on to something. But in those days, the FX, the Aussie dollar was down in the mid-60s, right? right. So now all of a sudden you've got to go, what's our hedge? And the dollar goes back up. Your margins get really crimped down if you start moving up into the 80s and 90s. And you go back a couple of years ago, it was above par, right? The Aussie dollar was stronger than the U.S. dollar. So now your margins are completely gone. So we decided collectively, it wasn't my decision, but we decided collectively to come out with a California line. And we did this market research with the California wine bastardized the Australian wines Mm. and people wouldn't buy that. Well, we found no, not at all. So that was our that was our hedge, right? So we we stayed with the U.S. currency here. We were locked in with the Australian currency there. The export was still good. When the things started to teeter a little bit, and the Australian wines started to fall off a bit, American wines picked up. So at one stage there, we were doing in the high two hundred thousand cases of wine a year. It was a pretty good little business. <laughs> so um, you know, no different than recognized with the soft goods, with the clothing. You know, I was a big proponent of when we used to do um, go with our sales um, uh, people, I would have them ask the consumer what they don't like about the product. Everybody tell you what's great about it, right? The fit, the feel, the cut, blah, 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 the buttons and, and your yoke and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, 
you want to hear the negative. And from the negative, you build a positive. When you hit a bad golf shot on the golf course, you want to fix that shot. You know how good you are with other shots, but you want to fix what failed, right? And uh, so I always was a big proponent of saying, okay, everybody tell me what's wrong with this. Is it the color? Is it the fit? Are we not doing a ladies' line? Um, is it too boxy? Are we too Americanized or whatever it is? You know, the big oversized XLs. So we actually went that way and we reverse engineered it. And we found out that, you know, the ladies were crying out for it. And now the ladies' line is a very, very successful side of Greg Norman collection. So um, I like the feedback. It's no different than building golf courses or real estate or anything like that. And the wine different, uh, the wine industry is the same thing, knowing what varietals work and don't work. Pinot is a big, big thing here in the United States 10 or, 10 or 11 years ago, 12 years ago. Now it's shifting again. So uh, Mastige wines now is shifting away from Mastige. So you have to be nimble enough to make that flexibility of what the trend is doing. Greg, a crazy market for real estate the last 10 years or so, mm-hmm. since the global financial crisis, which you've touched on already, in particular, you know, interest rates so low, mm-hmm. coupled with a very slow-growing economy. Can't seem to get out of this. It seems to be where we are. What do you think this says about the real estate market? I know because that's another area you're very big in. Well, I think there's a big upside in the real estate market um, right on the near horizon, probably in the next two to three years. A lot of it will do with this new tax coming through with the Trump administration, see how that plays out. But we've bottomed out in in golf course real estate communities. Um, There is now a uh, more of a request for golf course communities. Housing is at a th- the lowest level level now. More people are looking at buying houses than renting houses. So you'll you move this out 18 months to two years. This is what we see in our industry. 18 months to two years to maybe 30 months. You'll start seeing the trend going back up this way. Um, we're seeing it um, Australia, for example. Um, is it a bubble ready to burst in the real estate market? They've been saying that for 30, 40 years in Australia. But it's the the foreign money coming in, the Chinese money coming in and continually buying up, whether it's commercial real estate, agricultural real estate, or whether it's just houses. You know, it's been up 28, 30% since the GFC, up, you know. Uh, so when you think about that, you go sit back and do you, do you do it? But we just got a request. We're going to be building a golf course that's spending $650 million on a residential community in Australia on the East Coast. And it's Chinese money. So obviously they've done their homework. They know what's going to work and not work. And um, so that's a lot of money to invest in a development um, just south of Sydney. What about apparel, Greg? And as the term now is, seems to be wearables, you know, and they, they, you're, it's not just clothes anymore. It seems to have technology attached to them, tells you how far you've run or walked. Uh, again, another big industry uh, for your group. Where do you see this going? How is it going to evolve over the next few years? If I had a crystal ball, it's like getting tomorrow's newspaper today, right? Um, If I could do that, then we'd be way ahead of the game. But I think it's just understanding of what technology is giving the individual. And you're talking about wearables. Um, You know, will it be a computer chip one day embedded in your body to do whatever you need to do? I don't know. Um, But if you aren't, in some way, shape, or form connected to that degree and understanding what that consumer is looking for, then you will never play catch up. 
because there's so many companies out there ahead of you um, and, and trying to understand that. So when you look to the future, you have got to have that flexibility and adjustability of knowing what the markets are doing. If we can crack the code in China, right, you got 1.4 billion people sitting there looking for brand recognition, looking for quality, looking for best of breed, stuff like that, because China's starting to open up. I mean, Shanghai wouldn't be the city it is today if it wasn't for free market enterprise. Guangzhou, the same thing. Uh, Beijing, the same thing. You go to these big cities in China with, you know, 20 odd million people in there, free market capitalism helped them get to where they are, right? I mean, you got neon signs, you got the Western influence in there, you got currency coming in there, investment in China, investment in China. Uh, but they've stayed ahead of the curve. They're smart enough to know exactly where they're going to be and what percentage of their 1.4 billion people they have there need something. But it's, you know, to keep the communistic dominance with free market capitalism, you, you walk in a very fine line or a very interesting dance in that way, but they need both, right? So I think they've done a pretty good job today because when the GFC hit, all they did was turn internally. So they have 1.4 billion people that they could do. Their, their, their GDP probably dropped down, you know, maybe from, what was it, 18, 17, down into the eight or nines. Better than one and a half or one that America was, you know, suffering for a long period of time. So they have that capability to make that minor adjustment. So technology has a lot to do with that. The devices, what they do. Weibo has a lot to do with that. All the, you know, the connective partners they have over there. Some great young golfers today, Spieth, McElroy, do they come to you for advice? And, and, and what do you think is the most important thing you've tried to teach them when they do? Uh, the answer to that is no, so I haven't had to teach them. <laughs> <laughs> so no, not really. Yeah, they're not knocking on your door saying, will you mentor me? Will you help me out? No. You find that surprising? I do, actually. I think it's an interesting... I can understand it uh, because... If you look what's happened in tennis in the last five to six years, you've had um, Novak Djokovic go to Boris Becker. You've had uh, Roger Federer go to Stefan Edberg. You've had Michael Chang go to um, Milos Raonic, I believe. So what, what, what I'm getting to is the guys who are slam winners or number one players in the world previously have now been employed by number one players in the world today. Right. So why do they do that? To maintain that edge, they want that. There's only one other person can teach them that as a former number one. Hmm. No management company can teach you that. No guy who sits back in the back office can teach you that. So if Roger Federer feels like he can get an advantage over Rafa Nadal by picking Stefan Edberg's brain by being a great volleyer or a better volleyer, he's going to do that. And look at Roger today. He's in his mid 30s and still winning slams. Now, was that Stefan Edberg or was that just Rogers of freaking nature? Novak Djokovic, Boris Becker, changed his game philosophy on the tennis court. In golf, it doesn't happen at all. I have never seen Jack Nicklaus at a major championship giving advice to ex-young player. I've never seen any of us, any of us be that way. And a kind of bit of a mystery to me because I, I mentioned deep in the interview before, early on, I was never afraid to ask the question. I would never be afraid to ask Jack Nicholas a question or Arnold Palmer or Lee Trevino or Raymond Floyd. 
or President Bush or President Clinton or Jack Welch or a, um, a Roger Penske, any of these guys who have really been successful, they're going to give you some information that's going to allow you to build off of that and become a better person. And if you become a better person, then it might parlay out into something bigger. People in your industry tell me that you today, in terms of the marketing and the business side of, of, of a golfer, a former golfer, are what Arnold Palmer was in the 60s. And, and he sort of was the first sort of peck at the chip, if you will, in what he did with IMG back then. Right. And now you've taken it to this whole other level. Uh, do you feel that's accurate? No. Um, because I never stayed with IMG. I never stayed with the management company. I broke away to become my own company. I built, I built equity in my own brand. Now, Arnold was still doing endorsement deals right up to the day he passed away. God rest his soul, right? Um, so Arnold had that machine of IMG behind him being able to do that for him. I made the, the really gutsy move to do it alone, to finance it myself, open my own company up, go find my own human resources, instill a certain value within my company, uh, instill certain structures within my company to build that out. Ballsy move, quite honestly, because I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have any education in marketing or branding or I never went to university, but I was street smart. I was a Jack Welsh in my world or at a sport. Jack was a street smart guy. He never went to college. He knew what the industry was looking for. He knew what the consumers were looking for with GE, right? He knew if that business wasn't working, like we said before, sell it, fix it, or shut it down. He knew, boom, reacted, done. Okay, let's move on. Um, so it was a big, big decision for me. And no different than the decision that I did in the last year about going with ABG, Authentic Brands Group, right? Here I am, I've protected my holy grail the ent my entire life, and I looked into the future and say, okay, what do I do about protecting this holy grail? I mean, I have licenses out there now. Who's going to expand that? How's this, how's this company going to grow beyond that? So collectively within my team, marketing team, we decided to reposition from the Great White Shark Company to the Greg Norman Company, took the old logo, take it into the new logo, reached down to be younger looking, sexier looking, blah, 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 uh, to get away from the baby boomer era. And then we started thinking about, okay, how do we build into the future? How do we find a great partner that's going to protect this brand going forward? So we did an exhaustive study. And um, giving up a piece of the holy grail was probably, I mean, I've said this a few times now, but it was probably a, a, a tough but the right decision for me to make because... Now I know my brand is protected from a licensing side going forward forever. And that to me is really important, not only just for my brand, but for my family, the people who work for me, and they look out long-term view-wise. I mean, I've got a team that's so tight in my office, and they're so supportive about working into the future with an ABG to build all this thing out. It gets more exciting because now, you know, we talked about from a technology platform. Now you look at it from a licensing platform. That is about ready to pie chart out and go out into a bigger, greater things. Did you consider at all what uh, Authentic Brands Group had done with Shaq? I know he's been involved with them and has yeah. had a lot of success. Well, with I, looked, I look at more of um, what didn't they have. 
right? Wow. I mean, I looked at, you know, I'm a, from the sports, I'm from a lifestyle, and I'm from business. I mean, I've crossed the three thresholds. And um, I know what my business has done for the last, my branding business has done since 1993, right? Since I've opened my office. I know what I've done in the sports world for 40 years. So I've crossed a lot of places. Then you look at the portfolio of other of their company, uh, the, uh, 29, I believe, in their uh, portfolio of uh, licenses. Um, none of them really did all three. Some of them did two, some of them did one, but none of them did all three. And I thought, there's an opportunity. There's an opportunity to educate ABG about what we've done and how we've done it and give them another opportunity of going and having this all-encompassing approach instead of having a sports approach. So it really was a collective decision. It took 12 months, I think, or 14 months of discussions and negotiations. And, and uh, But, you know, I knew that was the right decision to make. And it was just like making the right decision to leave IMG. Like making the right decision to do certain things. It's uh, the Jack Welsh, it's your gut instinct, it's your street smart that allows you to go, I feel happy now. Is that, that almost sounds like it's a negotiation similar when an agent who's representing a player, let's say a pitcher, and he's going to the team and he's got all these stats saying, you know, this is the earn run average, this is this. You're going there, you went there and said, this is a huge portfolio. I'm into food, I'm into investing, I'm into real estate, I'm into golf course design. You don't have that, you're selling them on what your portfolio is so that you're going to get the best licensing deal possible. Well, you're right to a degree, but the, the, the beauty about what's happened with me in my world is I've kept my world really private. I mean, I lived in the public world between the ropes for, you know, number one player in the world where you got abused and you got adulated and you, they put you up on a pedestal because you could hit a white golf ball from point A to point B better than anybody else. There was a lot of mixed emotions about where you were, but that was then. But in the private world of my company, it was just that. Nobody knows what happens in the, in the sanctum of you know, Great White Shark Enterprises or now Greg Norman Company. And uh, I love that because you had that flexibility to build this business out with wonderful people, as I said. So I now have a platform that's a mile wide and not an inch wide and a mile deep. So now all of a sudden it's changed completely. So 40 years of experience is invaluable to somebody like ABG. And ABG's experience with what they have with their portfolio of other licenses is invaluable to me. So it was really a, a, the perfect match. I mean, again, it's putting all the pieces of the puzzle together. And there's no divorce in this one, right? It's a lifetime, it's a, it's a forever agreement. It's not just Greg Norman's lifetime. It's a forever agreement. And you gave them a small piece of your business and, and, and change they're going to put in sweat equity on, on the marketing and licensing side. They will put their powerhouse behind it, which is what you want. Uh, that's, that was a division we had over here one time. It was chugging along, doing okay, you know, but you know, I wasn't putting a lot of energy into it. And then all of a sudden you shifted over here. It's just got like a you know, rocket booster up its butt now. Where do you envision the business being 10, 15 years from now? And I, I know that's a long time, but I got to ask because you were quoted in something I read. I'm sure you were exaggerating, but you got to look out something like 200 years, years, you said, or something like that. So yeah, I feel I like I can ask that question. You can. And um, I did do that at the corporate retreat I had at my ranch in Colorado a few years ago. And I, I took one of my executives out there and we just did another one just recently, um, a month ago. 
And I gave him a 12-year horizon. I gave him a 200-year horizon. And I'm a big believer in building generational value. Um, so I wanted them to think about, okay, if my kids, kids, kids could stay with this company, what is the vision of the brand and where is it all going to go? So I had to deliver that message. And, you know, the premium, the, the prime one or the premium one was the 12-year horizon, which is now down to nine. Um, now it's actually down to eight and a half. So, you know, you've, you've still got to keep that. And then we have our other goals, you know, our, our monthly goals, our goal for the last four years with Verizon with Shark Experience, right? Um, getting this to market, that was a goal. Now we're here. Now how do we take this into the next goal and build that up? So no matter which way you look, um, you know, you look, you have a pretty good roadmap on every single one of them. So to answer your question, honestly, I don't know where it's going to end up, but I'm probably more excited about business today than I've ever been because of the partnerships that I have developed today, which are going to open up new opportunities for me that I've never even thought of. So I go in with my eyes wide open, my ears wide open, and I might pick up a conversation in a, a restaurant. I might hear one or two words, and I go, mm, okay, I think I can play into that. And I'll say, hey, go over and get that. I did it last night, actually, at a, at a function we're at. And I say, you know, somebody go over and get his card. I think that's a great contact because he made a comment about something. He was a presentation. And I said, it will fit into one of our opportunities. So those are the type of things I do. So I don't see anything but upside, but you know, worse things have happened as well too. What do you think helped you the most from your playing days in terms of how you run your business now? It's simple. It's due diligence, right? No matter when you practiced, if you were playing a tournament in two weeks, if you had two weeks off or the next week and you're home for a couple of days, you know where you're going, you know the golf course, you get ready, you practice, you practice your weakness and developing them into strengths. And uh, so you, you, when you get to the golf tournament, what is your ultimate goal? Is to win that event, right? So you practice Tuesday, Pro-Am, Wednesday, first tee, you can't win at the first round, but you can lose at the first round. So you establish a game plan about how do you get to Sunday to have a chance of winning that tournament. You're not going to win every one of them, of course. So that game plan is hatched up here in your head or it's hatched with your caddy or it's hatched with your coach or or you're in a team and uh, so you come at the end of it and you win you go yes that was it but what did we do wrong what did we do wrong so you sit back you take a look you write make notes okay we kind of our short game was pretty weak here my bunker play was weak here so there okay let's go work on those next week roll forward into business same thing with due diligence use ABG as an example Right, you look at ABG. I, I needed to go. I would need to develop a road plan um, to get to a certain place where my holy grail of licensing was protected to a degree. How do I do it? You look around. You get to, you get to your own team. You study with them. You understand. Okay, if we make this move, this is going to happen. With the ultimate goal of finding an ABG, right? So you go through the almost identical process of preparing to win a golf tournament to preparing to closing on a deal. No different with the shark experience with Verizon, Club Car, and GPSI. No different. We went through the whole process, the whole due diligence. Verizon, I can't imagine what they did behind the scenes, checking it out to make this big move into a virgin space. I know what we did from a GM media standpoint, and I know what from a manufacturer, an OEM like you know, Club Car, I know what they would have done. So everybody did their little bit of due diligence. 
we all came together, and the end result was, we think, a victory. Right? So, but what did we do wrong? We must have done something wrong to get to that process. Was there something we did wrong with ABG? You learn, you talk about it, and then you build on that, and you make that, like I said, I'm a big, big proponent of taking a failure and make it into a success. And then you build on that, and then all of a sudden, everything's better. And the, the more you go, and if you play the next tournament, you play better. And you know, they get to a situation like they did a couple of years where you win 10 tournaments in a year. So you feel that that was a pretty successful year. One last question. What would you say is the biggest failure that you subsequently turned into a success? Um, biggest failure. I would say I invested. I did a really good job investing into Cobra. I made a lot of money out of that. It was a very calculated decision. Won't get into that. But then I thought I could replicate it. And I tried to do it with a company called McGregor. I love the McGregor brand. I thought it was a really good, recognizable brand in total sports. Mm. Um, so I invested into that. And, um, you know, I, I misread some of the human resources in there. And it was a failure. So that was a big failure that taught me, again, never to step into that boundary of trusting people's opinions without really validating, substantiating, and making sure that that person was accountable for whatever happened. So I made a mistake there. Um, and um, yeah, no different than sitting down with the president of the United States asking what was his biggest mistake he ever made as president. They do tell you, you know, and we're all human beings. We all put our pants on the same way, right? And we're all vulnerable to making mistakes. It's whether you're willing to accept that you're accountable for that mistake and then moving on and making sure your mind and, clear, and conscience is clean. When does Greg Norman sit down, pat himself on the back and say, I have no more mountains to climb? Um, look, I think you might ask my, some of my staff that because sometimes I just, I'm a forward thinker. Um, I don't live in the past and I compartmentalize so strongly that, you know, there's a din and dip part of me, do it now and do it proper. I think there's so many mountains out there that, are there to be climbed. Uh, I don't think that I really am ever satisfied, to tell you the truth. I'm proud of what I've done, um, but I'm never really satisfied because if you did sat, sit back and go, okay, I reached the top of the mountain, there's only one place to go. You know, you're going sliding down the other side. So, and if I started doing that, then it's going to have a dramatic effect of all the people who are associated with my brand. So do I want to slow down one day? Yes, I would like to slow down one day. Do I, will I ever be involved in the minutiae of stuff like I am today? No, I don't want to be there. I want to have the company to a place where I feel so confident that everything I've exampled and taught and tried to lead my people in the right direction, believe it so strongly that I can step back and say, they've got it. Then I can maybe sit back and enjoy myself a little bit more. But I do enjoy, I shouldn't say enjoy myself, I do love my life right now. Sorry to take so much of your time. I found it fascinating. Not a problem. Thank you very much, Mr. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Forbes Sports Money. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with a comment or question, please email us at sportsmoney at podcastone.com. That's O-N-E dot com.
Hi, I'm Spencer Raskoff, the CEO of Zillow Group, and I have a new podcast here on Podcast One called Office Hours. Listen as I have one-on-one conversations with other CEOs. We have the kind of conversations that can only happen between peers, tackling tough questions, sharing hard-won insights, and helping to define what leadership means today. Join me twice a month on Office Hours, exclusively on Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and the new Podcast One app. I never planned on losing my job, but we all know life can change in an instant. And losing my family's health insurance was an even tougher pill to swallow. So I looked into Cobra, but too pricey. Then I found out I could enroll through Covered California, where I was able to choose from good health insurance companies I've actually heard of. I even got help paying for it. There's a limited time to qualify after losing your insurance, so check out CoveredCA.com today. Covered California. It's more than just health care. It's life care. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.